You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual I suppose I could talk about Liz and Mary Cheney uh, to open the show this week. They're, of course, the noxious daughters of our noxious former vice president. Uh, Mary is a lesbian and she has a partner, Heather. They've been together forever. They have kids. Liz is her disgusting, demagoguish sister and she's running for Senate in Wyoming uh, where being pro-gay marriage isn't going to help her. So she's come out against her sister's marriage and her sister's blowing up at her. And me, knowing the Cheneys, not personally but having – had them inflicted on me as a news consumer for the last decade and a half. Uh, I think that, you know, you couldn't put this past him, right? Mary could be pretending and Liz could be pretending. Mary could be pretending to be furious with Liz for opposing gay marriage to actually give her some anti-gay marriage cred in Wyoming on the ground with voters. It's called be a big fucking game. Who knows? But if the Cheneys are now all at each other's throats about gay marriage, you know what? That fucking couldn't happen to a nicer – pardon me. That couldn't happen to a viler pile of monkeys in my opinion. So I hope they tear each other's heads. But I'm not going to talk about them. I decided on the way in today. I'm just not going to talk about the Cheneys. Fuck the Cheneys. Liz Cheney is down by 50 points in the polls in Wyoming. Fighting with her dyke sister is not going to turn that around. She is going to have – her Cheney ass handed to her and that is going to be delicious. And I'm not going to talk about Alec Baldwin who said cocksucker and fag to somebody who probably isn't a cocksucker or a fag and revealed himself to have that sort of homophobic impulse bullshit that some straight men of his age have where the worst thing you can possibly say about somebody is they're a cocksucking fag and when he's really mad, that pops out. But, you know, whatever. Alec Baldwin shouldn't say that. And it is evidence of a lingering homophobia in his heart. Done with that. What I really wanted to talk about at the top of the show is a story that's about a week old uh, that's much more relevant to most of my listeners than what's going on with the Cheney family and the Senate race in Wyoming and Alec fucking Baldwin who gives a goddamn flying fuck. There was a story in the New York Times on November 11th by Natalie Kittroff. Not sure if I'm mispronouncing your name, Natalie. I'm sure you're a Magnum subscriber though, so I apologize to you. Uh, the headline was, In Hookups, Inequality Still Reigns. And it's about the fact that uh, when they did this research with college-age youngsters, they found that when a straight couple hooks up, 80% of the time the guy has an orgasm, which actually is like kind of shocking. Like 20% of the time the guys aren't having orgasms? Are they too drunk? What are they doing? Uh, but only 40% of the time do the women in any – brand new hookup actually come. And they sort of unpack why this might be. They get Debbie Herbenick, uh, who's a friend of the show and a terrific researcher and sexologist at Indiana University in there to sort of weigh this. And what's so interesting about this article, besides this disparity, that can be chalked up in part to the first example cited in the article, which is a student named Natasha Gadinsky, who says she, when she was in college at Brown, she hooked up one night and this guy – after he came, he showed, and quote, no interest in her satisfaction. This is where a mistake was made. This is where we can see how this persists in hetero land, right? After his own orgasm that night, she said, he showed no interest in her satisfaction. The next time they got together, it happened again. Why was there a fucking next time, Natasha? When someone shows no interest in your pleasure, there is no next time. This guy is getting away with this 
Because no woman, I'm going to hypothesize here, has ever stood up to him and said, oh, that was really shitty of you. Here's your underpanties. Get the fuck out of my apartment. Someone who's interested shows no signs, not even a feigning interest in my satisfaction, does not get an invite back to my pussy a second time. Eh, disqualified. But Natasha had him back. And can you predict what happens next? She has him back and he didn't even care, said Ms. Gadinsky. I don't think he tried at all. He fell asleep immediately, leaving her staring at the ceiling. I was really frustrated, she said. What is that definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome? You did the same dude over and over and you didn't get a different outcome because it was the same fucking dude. And also you didn't speak up for yourself. All that said, what I think is really interesting about this article is the way it kind of implicitly posits that orgasms are this one-for-one -one exchange that must happen in every sexual encounter. And I think we should sort of default in that direction, that both people should get off. But one of the things we're constantly saying to men is that sex isn't only about your orgasms, that sex can be wonderful and intimate and you can have this physical connection that one person can get off uh, and the other person might not want to come or not be able to come that night and that's fine and you can keep going and rolling around. But listen to this quote halfway through. I think it's really revealing. Uh, a doctor they interviewed is quoted as saying, we've been sold this bill of goods that we're in an era where people can be sexually free and participate equally in the hookup culture. The fact is that not everyone is having a good time. I just wanted to jump in here and say that it is possible to have a good time without climaxing. It is possible to have a good time without necessarily getting off. And for a lot of young women who were the focus of this study, they don't grow up in a culture that encourages young women to masturbate. They arrive at partnered sex never having made themselves come. Guys are experts in how their dicks work by the time they arrive at partnered sex. They've been jacking it for years, sometimes five years, sometimes ten years. They know exactly what it takes and a lot of young women early on – don't know how to advocate for themselves sexually as the, the, Natasha didn't. And also then it takes them some time in partnered sex to learn how their junk works, how their pussies work and what they, their pussies need to get off. So it may not be an apples to oranges measure to look at young people just starting out in their sexual lives and find that the men are coming and the women are not coming because the men are experts. They know what it takes. Doesn't mean that Natasha's partner wasn't a selfish douchebag who displayed no interest in her pleasure, but the men know what it takes and they advocate for themselves and the women don't know quite what it takes. They're still floundering around a lot of them, figuring it out and then hoping the guy will somehow take the lead and, and, and show them how their vaginas work, how their pussies work and they don't. They can't. They barely know how their dicks work. And dicks, as Debbie Herbenick points out in this article when they get around to quoting her, dicks are obvious. You know how a dick works. Everybody pretty much knows how a dick works. Um, up and down, up and down, come, Right? women's uh, desire, women's bodies, women's genitalia are much more complicated and each one is a delicate flower that almost sort of sexually functions in a very different way and that takes some time. Not only are dicks simple but you watch porn and you see them work. You know what a guy's orgasm looks like. You can physiologically witness what it, it, how it plays on his face, what it looks like. There aren't a lot of women actually coming in the pornography that a lot of straight boys are exposed to or straight girls are exposed to. So a lot of them really don't know what a woman looks like when she's coming. Guys might think that this guy that poor Natasha got with twice who demonstrated no interest in her sexual pleasure and rolled over and fell asleep immediately. He may have thought that what he was getting from her, what he wit what he saw was her coming because it looked like how women react physically in porn and it wasn't her coming. It was just her rolling with – penetrative sex and enjoying it and having some sensations but not having an orgasm, which is why I always recommend to straight couples, particularly young straight couples, that you masturbate in front of each other. 
young women, masturbate in front of your boyfriends. Show them what your orgasm. If you are orgasmic already, and I hope you are, show them what your orgasm really looks like. And a woman's orgasm, particularly if he's young and inexperienced, show him out of the gate what a woman coming really looks like. So in the future, if he's with other people, he can never assume that that whatever he was getting was an orgasm. He'll know the difference between a woman faking and a woman coming or a woman just enjoying intercourse and a woman getting off from intercourse. But I don't want to say to young women who are exploring their sexualities, perhaps young women who didn't grow up masturbating, have never masturbated, never learned how their own pussies work. They arrive at partnered intercourse. I don't think it's helpful to say to them when they're being intimate and they're having these, having these encounters, they have a boyfriend. If they're not getting off, if they aren't yet orgasmic, I don't think it's helpful to look at them and say you're not having a good time, that sex is and only is about – the climax because that's really to impose on sex for everyone, male, female and every other point along the gender spectrum, a very sort of male definition of, of sex and sexual desire and intimacy and fulfillment. Come and done, right? We tell guys not to focus on that, not to overfocus on that. And I don't think that it's necessarily helpful to tell women who are just coming into themselves, just learning to come themselves – that they have to look at an encounter if there wasn't an orgasm for them as a failure or not a good time. I'm not saying that it's okay for a guy to roll over and pay no attention and show no interest in his partner's pleasure. But I don't think we should say to somebody, to a woman who's just exploring her sexuality, learning how her pussy works, learning what she likes, uh, that she got with a guy and she liked him and he liked her and there was physical intimacy and pleasure in the moment uh, that if she didn't come, it wasn't good for her necessarily. That it could have been good for her. It could have been another step on her road to learning how her body works, learning what she needs, learning what it takes, learning how to advocate for herself. And everything else that sex can be about besides the orgasm can be present and happening and good and fulfilling. Which is not to excuse a dude who rolls over and falls asleep, who expresses no interest in his partner's pleasure. Not at all. Not excusing that. But there are people out there and I hear from them whose partners express interest in their pleasure, whose partners are invested in them getting off who can't yet get off, who are still on that road, still learning how their genitals work. And we should tell them that it's good and good for them too and they'll get there and not to focus too much on the orgasm as the sole measure of pleasure because it isn't. And now your calls. Hey, Dan. I'm a straight man in my late 20s from the Northwest and I'm calling about a vasectomy. I'm pretty sure that I don't want kids, but I'm not entirely certain and so I don't necessarily want to do something that will make that option impossible. When I'm in casual situations, I'm really good about using condoms and in long-term relationships until we've both been checked, I always believe in condoms. But two of my last three girlfriends have had the IUD and that's been totally awesome, but several of the ones before that were not, and anytime there was anything brought up about birth control, they just had a blanket statement that they didn't like birth control despite there being tons of options. And they were kind of against even trying it because, oh, it makes me hormonal or whatever. So I kind of felt powerless, and I've always considered having a vasectomy, but I've noticed a stigma with women that they think that's really selfish. And in fact, several women, friends, and those that I've been in relationships with have said, that they wouldn't date a guy who had a vasectomy because that totally closes the door. And despite there being proof that it can be reversed, 
it might not be the best option, but is it selfish of me to have a vasectomy or what else can we do? It's your body, as someone once said to 51% of humanity. It's your body. You can do with it what you want to do with it. If you want to take charge of your reproductive choices and reproductive health and kids or something that you don't want, you can ensure that never happens to you by getting the fucking vasectomy. And if if you want, you know, I was just having drinks last night with a friend who went and had some of her eggs harvested and frozen forever in case she needs them later. You can go freeze a few loads if you want. You can go to a sperm bank and make a big fat swimming deposit and have those on hand. So if you do ever change your mind, you have another strategy in addition to trying to reverse a vasectomy, which is difficult but can be done. But these women who tell you that it's selfish of you to control your own body, to make your own choices, just turn that around on them and say, so would it be all right for me as the man to tell you that you're not allowed to have your tubes tied without clearing it with me first or that you're not allowed to take certain kinds of birth control because I think that they're selfish? Hello, my nuts, my choice, my body, my choice. And, you know, if you tell a woman that you've gotten a vasectomy and she thought that, that was a terrible and selfish choice, well, clearly you're not a match. There are women out there who you will tell them that you've had a vasectomy and they will think, holy fucking shit, I've hit the ball sack jackpot. This is the guy I want. I don't want to take these hormonal birth control pills. I want to be able to have with somebody who I am fluid bonded with and I trust and I'm partnered with and we've tested a relationship where there's no worries about birth control because he had a vasectomy. Yay. I don't have to have a dumb IUD floating around in my twat for the rest of my life. I don't have to take all these shitty pills and he can spunk in me all we like. They're your nuts. Do what you like with them. Hello, Dan. Um, my name's Valerie. I am a lesbian Mary. My wife and I are mentors, big sisters, slash auxiliary coaches to a junior girls roller derby team. And all of the parents are super supportive of us being there. The girls have been hounding us for a while to have a sleepover at our house. And with parental con uh, permission, we have decided to go ahead and have that. My wife's concern is some of the girls also identify as lesbian and are coupled, actually. So she's very concerned about them sleeping in the same room, potentially having sex, all of these things that, uh, you know, most, I guess, high school parents, whatever, are very concerned about. I, on the other hand, not. Like, they're lesbians. They really haven't had sex. So no STDs, no chance of pregnancy, whatever. So the question is, is what do you think the house rules should be? Should these girls who are coupled be able to share a room together privately or does everybody need to sleep in one big dog pile in, in the living room with our watchful eye over them? Typically, it's not the most progressive parents whose wishes have to be taken into consideration and catered to in a situation like this. It is the least progressive parents. You know, there's a lot of talk right now about the way the Dutch do it. The Dutch allow uh, their teenage children to sleep with their teenage partners or age-appropriate First gloves, crushes, the people to whom their children are losing their virginities and vice versa under the same roof in their parents' house. They allow for sleepovers because it is better for their kids to be having sex if their kids are having sex and their kids are having sex and so are our kids in a place where they have some privacy, where there's adults uh, around, where there isn't going to be presumably as many opportunities for binge drinking or stupidity or anything else and there's a you know family in, in the house. So if something is – going wrong or stupid or out of control, uh, dad can kick the door down and sort that out. But this is America and Australia got the convicts and Canada got the French and we got the Puritans. And if you as the lesbian coaches of this lesbian soccer team allowed the lesbian 
team members and their girlfriends who are also on the teams to have privacy and to put them in their own rooms because you consider yourself more in the Dutch camp on this issue. That is going to panic and freak out the least progressive parents of members of your team. And that's going to be bad for you guys, bad for the team. It's going to create all sorts of drama. And I don't see you know, as much as I would like us to be more like the Dutch, I don't see that happening anytime soon. So I think having the convo will move the culture gradually. So I think you could say to the parents, you know, we're going to do the dog pile in the one room where it's easy to make sure that everyone is behaving themselves. But I'm kind of with you. You know, there's no chance of pregnancy. And I think that is one of the things that people kind of freak out about sexually active teenagers, most of whom are heterosexual, is the way an unplanned pregnancy that doesn't end in uh, – Someone exercising their constitutional right to terminate a pregnancy can really derail two young people's lives forever. When it's a couple of queer kids, when it's two girls or two boys, there are other things, heartbreak, d diseases, certainly uh, other things that have to be taken into consideration. But unplanned pregnancies that potentially could derail the rest of their lives are not among them. All that said, I'm going to go with the dog pile to take, you know, to cater to the delicate sensibilities of the least progressive parents who could cause you and your wife the most grief and could cause real drama and upset for the whole team. Tell them that you're going to put them all in the same room, that you guys will be doing a little bit of policing, and then dot, 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 acknowledging that you can't keep eyes on kids all the time, that kids have found a way to sneak off and have sex always. And if the girls at this party where there's no chance of pregnancy and little chance of privacy have it in their heads that they're going to get some finger banging done at this party, whatever the adults may say, wherever they're instructed to sleep. That's probably going to happen regardless. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old straight guy in the Midwest, and I have sort of an ethical question for you. Uh, like so many kids my age, I maintain and write a blog. And one of the things I like to blog about is dating. And the blog is fairly easy to find if you Google my name. And I also have links to it on my Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter profiles. I don't hide it. But because I like to blog about dating, it brings up an interesting question. Do I have an obligation to inform dates that they may be blogged about? And if so, at what point do I need to disclose that? If you disclose, and I do think that you have an obligation to disclose, you're not going to have many dates. So you're not going to have much material for your blog because most people, if they're informed in advance that they're going to be written about and critiqued in a public forum that is easy to find, are going to opt out of dating you. They're going to leap to – and it's not a big leap – to the conclusion that you're not really so much interested in them for them but you're interested in them for fodder. And people who want to date, people who are thinking about love and mating and romance as opposed to just hooking up, don't want to be fodder. They want to be people. They don't want to be material. I say this as a pretty brutal memoirist <laughs> who married a dude and then started writing about him who didn't want to be written about but now he's cool with it but it took some time for him to get used to it. Uh, so I've been in your position but a dating blog that just – it calls to mind something slightly – for a food foodie, you're going to write a food blog. You're going to have three meals a day at least and you're going to have tons of material. If you write a dating blog and you want to have a ton of material, that means you're going to want to go on a lot of unsuccessful dates. It means you're going to want to churn through – Potential partners, although they're not really potential partners because you're probably picking them for the comedy and the drama and the material. You're going to want to churn through people at a pretty healthy clip. So you're actually pulling these people into your dating life not to 
audition them as potential partners, whether short-term or long-term, which is what dating is supposed to be about, what two people who go on a date both arrive with the understanding, implicit, that that's what this is about. You're bringing them into your dating life to scrutinize, to mine. Uh, I haven't seen your blog, but perhaps to mock and belittle. And if your blog is easily found, that's going to hurt their feelings. That's not fair. That makes you an asshole if you do that to people. That's dating under false pretenses. That's misrepresenting yourself and your intentions. That's not cool. But if you disclose, then you're going to date a lot of exhibitionistic sociopaths who wish to be written about. Maybe that's the type of date you deserve. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm calling from the Midwest, and I was riding the train last night and ended up in a kind of weird situation. I'm just wondering if I did the right thing or didn't do the right thing. So in a nutshell, I've been listening to you forever and am in a long-term relationship and we are GGG and have had like monogamous experiences and whatever. We know the drill. So anyway, I was riding the train. I've got boots on and really nice stockings and this guy sits next to me on the train and he's rather attractive and probably about 10 years younger than me and he has a bag on top of his lap and as he sits down I feel his leg pressed against mine I'm like whatever no issue because it's kind of like tight quarters on the train it's rush hour and at some point I feel his hand on his leg which is then his hand is kind of pressing on my leg but um, as it's moving down further toward my knee let's say the right direction I'm feeling his fingers kind of reaching out a bit and he's kind of probing at my stockings a little and me being GGG and having had some other experiences and this guy's kind of hot. I'm like, all right, well, doesn't suck. It's kind of inappropriate. So I didn't call him out. And then after a few train stops, it stopped and he stopped doing it. Whatever. End of the story. So did I do something wrong by allowing him to do this? Because I'm remembering back when I was younger and certain males taking advantage of, you know, females a lot of times they're objectified in a lot of different ways in their workplace, in public, on the train, wherever. So did I do a disservice to females by not saying, knock it the fuck off, what are you doing? Because the other side of it is, it was kind of nice actually, and I didn't know if this was some sort of like hook up an old way without Craigslist. Boy, am I on the fence about this one. Uh, on the one hand, objectively, obviously, by not speaking up, by not slapping him down uh, because you were enjoying it, you did give him the impression that this is something that he can get away with. Uh, and if he sensed that you were digging it, you definitely gave him some positive reinforcement around this really negative behavior, this thing that can leave a lot of women and does leave a lot of women and leaves almost all women who are subjected to it feeling targeted, vulnerable, sexually assaulted, unsafe on public transportation, unsafe on the streets, unsafe on buses and subways and trains and planes and automobiles. And so objectively, absolutely, it's just unavoidable that you have to take some responsibility for having set up some other woman perhaps. I mean this guy was engaging this behavior before you came along. Uh, but he's likelier, perhaps infinitesimally likelier, just a fraction likelier to continue on with this behavior until somebody punches him in the face, until somebody gets into a screaming fight with him on the train and people start videotaping him, until he's like called out and shamed. This is likelier to go on. But it was going on before you came along. It will be going on after you – until somebody gets in his face. You weren't that somebody. 
So in a way, by not, you know, screaming and yelling and getting in his face, by not being that somebody that got him to knock this shit off, perhaps, there's another woman that he's going to sit down next to on the L tomorrow or the next day or, or the day after that. And that woman is going to have her day ruined, not have her day made the way that you did. Because for her, it won't be a little bit of sexy, pervy, uh, attractiveness, affirming fun or, you know, just dangerous sexy, heart-racy fun like it was for you, for her it's going to be you know, mortifying. Maybe she's on the way home from her mother's wake and this happens. Maybe she's just been fired and this happens. Maybe her boyfriend is being horrible or her husband's been horrible to her or she just got dumped uh, or she got groped yesterday or she's a victim of sexual assault or intimate partner violence or she's been raped uh, and this happens to her uh, and it's not going to sit as well with her. And maybe you could have – Sisterhood is powerful, spared her, spared that next person that this happened to who might not have reacted as well as you did. Listening to your call, uh, one of the tech savvy at risk youth offered that there might have been a way to acknowledge what he was doing uh, that called him out uh, without having to pretend that you were feeling victimized or afraid uh, just by looking at him and saying, I hope you don't do that to everybody because most people will get really pissed off. Uh, most women uh, would be really angry about that. I'm not most women. That there might have been a way to own your own pleasure in the moment, own the fact that you dug it, that it was retroactively consensual. Is that a thing? While pointing out to him, while driving home to him that almost all other women will not dig this, which is probably something that he does dig about it. These guys who do this to women aren't doing it to women typically because they think this is something women welcome or want. And again, it does take that arrest. It does take that screaming, yelling, public shaming, confrontation video on YouTubing often to get a guy to really fucking pull out of this kind of garbage. So I, like I said, I'm on the fence. On the one hand, yeah, you did contribute in a, in a tiny way, grain of sand on the beach way. This was happening before you. It will be happening after you. He did it to other women before you. He'll do it to other women after you. It's unlikely this was a test run on you and now he's going to do this to 10,000 other women over the next six months. You were one in a series, so you contributed. But uh, wouldn't it be nice if every time this happened, it was something – it only happened, like some sort of you know, magic. If you could just work this magic on the world that when these creeps groped on subways, they were always, as you said, of this guy kind of hot and kind of hot as a subjective, kind of hot to whoever was being groped. Uh, and it was fun for both parties. But you know what? It almost – Never is. I would say that of all the women who have been groped on the subways of the city that you live in in the last year, you may be the only one who felt this way uh, about it as it went down. Hey, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old trans guy living in a small town on the East Coast. I just got off the phone with my insurance company because I was calling to find out a call I put off for a long time if gender reassignment surgery was covered under my plan. When I looked online, it said that to determine if you can have gender reassignment surgery, you have to meet certain criteria to make it medically necessary, all of which I meet, but that it depends on the state you live in. I called to find out and they informed me that the state I live in does not require them to cover gender reassignment surgery. I'm a student, I don't have a lot of money. Uh, surgery costs for top surgeries I'm looking into, the costs 
from around $8,000 to $11,000. I just, I can't stand in front of a mirror without my clothes on, without my world crumbling around me. It constantly, I mean, sex is hardly an option because if, if my binder slips or if they want me, my partner wants me to take my clothes off, that's it. I can't, I can't even continue going on. I pass all the time now, so not having a surgery. It's like when I come home to take off my clothes at night, I disappear. I, I guess I'm just calling because I, I, w- I was wondering if you know of anything that can, like grants or, or some way to get money to help do this. I don't, you know, I feel like it's lasting forever. And in the meantime, I'm stuck in a limbo and, and maybe talk about how in any way it's right to have something be medically necessary in one state but not another. Joining us by phone uh, from New York City, Drew Leviser. He is the co-founder of the Jim Collins Foundation, a nonprofit that raises money to fund gender-confirming surgeries for trans folks. He's also the director of the Transgender Rights Project for Lambda Legal, the oldest and largest LGBT legal organization in the country. Thanks for jumping on the phone with us today, Drew. Yeah, happy to be here. So quickly to answer a question that the, the caller brings up right at the end, how can something be declared medically necessary in one state and somehow not be medically necessary in another state? Well, it boils down to one word, discrimination. Um, this issue uh, is being litigated right now in the courts. And um, basically, the medical community has consensus for many years that they understand that these types of procedures for gender transition can be medically necessary. It depends on the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, this caller, you know, would have to go to his provider and then figure out if this is actually something that is medically necessary for him. There's no set formula for gender transition, as you know. Um, but if it's medically necessary, it's medically necessary, and it should be covered. Some people have argued, and I'm just devil's advocating here, this is not my point of view, that yeah. these aren't medically necessary surgeries. They've been called uh, gender Confirmation surgery, that's the new term for it, gender confirming surgeries, not sex reassignment surgeries or SRS, which is what it used to be called, that these are cosmetic procedures because, you know, this uh, trans man living with breasts isn't in any medical danger. He isn't going to die from breasts. And so these are cosmetic procedures, they're elective and not necessary. What's the response to that argument? And that is the age-old uh, misconception around transgender healthcare. And many, many years now, um, doctors have had consensus around this that it can be medically necessary. And just to prove this, this has been litigated in the courts. Um, for example, in the prison context, you might have seen that in the in the press a lot, mm-hmm. um, where you know it's a cruel and unusual punishment standard when you're behind bars. And the courts have found that this can be medically necessary for people in prison. Um, it's, you know, there's consensus around this and there's no question. The idea that this is cosmetic or elective is far gone. And that is why you're seeing more and more cases and insurance companies are losing their grip on this type of discrimination, state by state, as this caller points out. Okay, so what when this caller describes taking off his bindings and... Yeah. And looking at his own body and not being able to get undressed in front of a sex partner, is that where it becomes medically necessary when it's such a, such a mental torment to, to, to not have your body in align with your gender identity? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the definition that's in, you know, the DSM as a diagnosis, and that's how our insurance is all understood, but the diagnosis is around the distress that one feels, like the caller explained so well, um, when his body does not match his internal sense of being a man. Um, and that kind of distress can be range for certain people. Um, for some people, it can be incredibly, you know, despairing. And like um, this guy really talks about that kind of experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we started the Jim Collins Foundation to draw attention to this issue. For, you know, we saw that there's so much discrimination people don't understand. If you're not trans yourself or have a loved one who explains to you what that feels like, you really don't have an idea about how this could be so life-saving. I mean, the 41% suicide rate in the trans community is connected to this kind of discrimination. Mm-hmm. Not being able to have the health care that you need to live your life can be debilitating. Okay. We have over, you know, like 300 applications, you know, last round. Um, and people are telling us that, you know, they're just holding on by a thread. And you can imagine if you, your body did not match who you feel that you are. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very distressing experience. So tell us about, directly address the caller. What, what, what services are out there for him? He's, should he be suing his healthcare provider or his insurance company? Is there that kind of support out there? Or, or are there your yeah. organization that he can approach? Are there other organizations? I've, there's been a story recently, mm-hmm. um, I, I believe it was on Huffington Post, about so many trans people uh, going online and doing online fundraising campaigns, Indiegogos and uh, yeah. and others to raise the money that they need for their gender reassignment surgeries. So lay yeah. out for the caller what, what, what his options might be. Sure. Well, um, first of all, if he has insurance, which most trans people don't, um, most trans people are poor, but um, if he does have insurance, it would be worthwhile for him to actually look at his plan to see if he has an exclusion in there. Um, it says, you know, he said that he did find that exclusion and therefore he should try to appeal it. Um, we have a transgender toolkit at Lambda Legal um, that directly discusses what to do to answer your question. Um, if you have an exclusion in your plan, um, the toolkit series, you can find at LambdaLegal.org. Um, And so he should appeal, he should contact Lambda Legal and other organizations who are challenging this. Um, We challenged this in Oregon, and the state of Oregon dropped their exclusion because we sued on behalf of a trans guy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, we're looking for more cases like that. But he could also, like you said, um, you know, in the meantime, look to other resources. Unfortunately, um, when we founded the Jim Collins Foundation, we knew we were not going to be able to raise by individual donations enough money to, you know, serve all the people who need this kind of life-saving care. But we wanted to start somewhere. Um, it's founded by two transgender men, myself and Tony Ferriolo. And, um, you know, in the last you know, five years, we have changed five people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go on our website, jimcollinsfoundation.org, um, to read about their lives, you know, the people who have had surgery. Um, but, you know, fundraising is tough on this issue. As you pointed out, there's a lack of understanding around that. Um, so some people have taken it into their own hands and created their own online campaigns. But not everybody has access to the Internet, knows how to use that, knows how to raise money. Mm-hmm. So it's often the most privileged in our community that end up becoming successful doing that, which is great, but what about everybody else? So it really has to be a national movement for Medicaid to lift the exclusion and insurance companies to get on board. Get with the times, people. 
So you're, you're the first thing that you think the, the caller should do is contact Lambda Legal about what his rights may be and to appeal this decision by his health care provider. Yeah, and I would say check out our toolkit on the issue. Okay, and also check out jimcollinsfoundation.org if you want to learn more about this issue. Drew Leviser, co-founder of the Jim Collins Foundation, a nonprofit that raises money to fund gender-confirming surgeries. Thanks so much for jumping on the phone with us today. Thanks, Dan. Keep up the great work. While we're on the subject of trans men, a lighter issue here. There's a comic that's been making the rounds online. Maybe you saw it on Huffington Post. Maybe you saw it in my Twitter feed. It's called Orientation Police, and it was drawn by a comic artist who's a gay man, been out forever, and in the last few years began dating some trans gay guys. And he encountered some pushback uh, and has some perspective on that and wrote this comic. It's very funny uh, and very informative. Uh, it's called Orientation Police. Again, you can go find it pretty easily. And the cartoonist Bill Roundy joins us right now by phone. It's not just trans men who face issues around uh, their sex lives. Uh, it's also men, gay men, who have uh, relationships or sex with gay trans men who face issues. And there's a really terrific cartoon out there that's been making the rounds called Orientation Police. It was created by Bill Roundy. He's a cartoonist with a weekly comic strip in the Brooklyn paper. Uh, his short story slash comic, The Orientation Police, has been published in the anthology Anything That Loves, Comics Beyond Gay and Straight, uh, which comes into comic book stores this week. Uh, and he posts new comics all the time at BillRoundy.com. And he joins us by phone right now. Hey, Bill. Hey, Dan. So you're a, a, a new model gay. You're something that, that, that I've talked about for years and, and people started making appearances in the column. Uh, but a, 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 an openly gay dude, a gay guy who's been out and gay forever, uh, and you are now have now dated uh, gay trans men. And that has created some conflict and drama in your life. And that's what this comic is about. Yeah. There, uh, because I've dated a couple of trans men now, there are some people who think that that disqualifies me from being gay. What does it make you if you date a gay trans man? I think it makes me gay. <laughs> what do the orientation police think it makes you? Well, they tend to think that trans men are really women. Mm -hmm. uh, that they're just deluded or uh, trying to sneak into the gay club. And uh, that by sleeping with them, that makes me at least bisexual and maybe straight. Because, you know, when we talk about trans men and the trans men that you've slept with, we're talking about folks who've had uh, gender confirmation surgery or top surgery, but guys like Buck Angel, who calls himself the man with the pussy, those are the kinds of guys that you've been with, right? Uh, yes, mostly. And, you know, for some gay guys, that's a deal breaker. And I don't think that's necessarily transphobic to say, I'm a gay man who wants to sleep with men who have dicks. Right? Do you think that's transphobic? Right. Well... I think that you're allowed to disqualify someone from your dating pool for any reason. Mm -hmm. Like, even if I think that reason is dumb, I think that it's a legitimate reason. Like, if your favorite sexual activity is keep throwing an eight-inch cock, maybe you shouldn't date trans guys. I think that would probably work out badly for you and for your potential partner. Mm -hmm. But if your favorite activity is plowing hole... You know, uh, it actually works out pretty well. <laughs> Are you currently dating a trans man? Uh, I'm no, I'm single right now. Okay, the the cartoon has been getting out there. The orientation police, uh, the comic strip that you drew about being a gay man who's dated trans guys, and the pushback and the confusion and sometimes the ignorance uh, that you've encountered as a result. W what's the response been? Are you happy with uh, how far and wide this particular work of yours is being disseminated? Um, it's been a little crazy, actually. How so? Uh, it it's fun, but I was expecting it to be read by like 200 people on my website, and 
whatever the print run of anything that loves is. And uh, it's not gotten 70,000 hits on Tumblr. It was on uh, Huffington Post and 100,000 people read it there. I got hundreds of comments on my website and I eventually just had to close that down because it was over, getting overwhelming. And, I, and I've pushed it out uh, a couple of times you know, via Twitter and, and the Savage Love Letter of the Day because I really think it's genius. There's a lot of gay guys out there who are open to dating trans men now and you sort of become their, their voice and their spokesmodel. Right, because I don't, there aren't any gay men who are speaking sort of about this issue. Um, and no trans men really either. Mm-hmm. So, like, okay, here's, I can just say, like, this is my experience. Right. And so, from your experience, is there any difference dating uh, a gay cis man and a gay trans man and how it feels and the way the relationship works and everything? Well, I think that there are differences, but. The differences between individual cisgender men that I've dated have been larger than the broad swath, you know, than the differences between all of the cis men and all of the trans men. Any words of advice for a gay dude out there who's been asked out on a date by a trans guy who's thinking about it? Well, um, I'll just note that there are uh, lots of things that you can do uh, if you're worried about your other partner, you know, not having a biological penis. There are things that you can do, like... You don't worry about your dick, for one thing. Uh-huh. And also, you know, if he has a strap-on, there are some advantages there. And what are those advantages? Well, there's no refractory period, for one thing. <laughs> uh-huh. You don't have to worry about getting whiskey dick. That's true. If, uh, if it's not the right size that works for you, there may be another one in the drawer. Sounds like there's nothing but upside. Yeah, it's, uh, it's worked out fine for me. Um, there have been you know, there are a few issues sort of with the sexual side. Uh, because, like, the first time I went down on a trans van, I was like, I don't, I don't know what's going on down here. You're going to have to tell me what to do. He sort of gave me some coaching. And uh, you had to, there was an adjustment period there. So I'll just warn, uh, warn gay men who have never encountered that anatomy before. To, you're going to have to talk through it. The comic is Orientation Police. The uh, artist is Bill Roundy. You can see Orientation Police at BillRoundy.com or just Google Orientation Police and it pops right up. Thanks for jumping on the phone with us today, Bill. Thanks for having me. Hey, Dan. I have a question about relationship advice. Um, I'm 18 years old and I have been in the same relationship for about five years now. So since I was about 13. I never experienced another woman. I never touched another woman. I don't know how it is to be with another woman. I'm in college now and things are a little bit different. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot more women around. I'm very curious. Uh, I kind of want to explore, but at the same time, I'm very in love with my girlfriend and, and she... What what she communicates to me is she she doesn't have those kind of you know uh, motivations. She doesn't want to explore other men. It's like I feel one sided. Like this is the only thing I want to do, and I feel bad because I do love her and I I, I love her line. One thing about love I learned is love is unselfish, and I feel like I'm being really selfish by wanting to explore other women. But I feel like I will never be able to mature our relationship without exploring other women, kind of discover myself without having those boundaries. Could you give me advice? You know, do I love her if I want to be with other women, you know, sexually? Or if I do love her, what should I do? Just 
say, hey, this is how it is, and hopefully one day we can be together. Here's the trap you're in. Here's, a, here, here's your predicament. You don't want to be a bad guy, and you don't want to hurt this girl that you've been dating for five years since you were 13 years old that you probably have affection for, that you do love and have loved and you have this history together and some of the most intense moments of your lives. You really grew up together from early adolescence, early puberty all the way through 18 in college and you just don't want to inflict needless pain on her. You don't want to be an asshole but the fact of the matter is you're done with her that this relationship for you has run its course and it is now blocking you from some life experiences that you would like to have. It is no longer you know, filling your life with possibility and it is no longer uh, a relationship that broadens your horizons. It's one that's really severely limiting them and you want to get out there and explore and you want to date other people. And I think that you should. Find me the person – persons in America who did not grow up on a Mormon compound somewhere, a fundamentalist Mormon compound somewhere in Utah, find me that person who is married uh, and happily married in adulthood to somebody they started dating at age 13 fucking teen. They don't exist. People typically rarely, if ever, wind up in long-term forever relationships with the people they dated in middle school. So uh, my advice to you would be to End it as cleanly and clearly and unambiguously and sensitively as you can and just say, we've been dating for five years. Uh, they've been great years. Um, I do love you. I think that it would be the best thing for both of us if we got out there in the world unencumbered for a while and explored and learned more about ourselves and dated other people. And then we're young. We're only 18. If we are meant to be together – we will circle back to each other. We can get back together at 22 or 25 or 32 or 35. But there's nothing about ending this now that means you can't have a relationship at some point in the future. That's probably not going to happen but you can say that. And I don't think that that is a soften the blow, bit of pseudo sensitivity that actually somehow transmorgifies into cruelty in practice. I actually think that's a decent – thing to say that acknowledges that life is long and shit happens and people get back together and people break up for a while and and this doesn't have to be the ultimate end but it is the end for now and for now we are it is over and we are off and we are free uh and young and single and at college and there are worse things to be Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old, mostly straight female in the Pacific Northwest. I have a hypothetical moral dilemma. I went to a meetup party game tonight and played scruples with a group of about 10 people. The question I was posed was, would you buy your 14-year-old son girly magazines if he asked for it? My answer was yes. Everyone else answered no. My thought was that in the 80s or early 90s, when the game was created, kids didn't have access to the internet. And you must be 18 to buy x-rays magazine. So I thought, okay, what would Dan Savage do? And I think that he would because Dan Savage would buy sex toys for underage people as well. Their response was that go to the internet like everybody else. But I was putting myself in the situation of when the game was created and, and this child would not have access, I would think, to pornography otherwise unless they had access to um, other kids that were 18 plus. So I'm asking you, Dan Savage, did I make the moral choice? I reject the premise of the question. Um, would you buy dirty magazines 
for a 14-year-old. Uh, but there really is no 14-year-old out there who wants their parents buying them dirty magazines. 14-year-olds, I am from the era of the dirty magazines. I grew up with dirty magazines. We managed to get our hands on them at 14 without our parents' assistance. Uh, there were, believe it or not, unscrupulous sales clerks at the 7-Eleven who would sell Playboys to 15-year-olds and 16-year-olds and 14-year-olds. Um, there was no real lack uh, of access to porn mags then. Uh, I have said though, you know, I would buy a penetrative sex toy uh, for my daughter if she wanted one and that is a conversation that um, is difficult but we allow boys to play with penetrative sex toys. They make them with their hands. All you have to do is make a fist around your dick and you have a penetrative sex toy and having that penetrative sex toy in your life can make the prospect of future partnered penetrative sex less daunting and terrifying because you've actually been able to experiment with that sensation and what it feels like to penetrate something even if it is your only right hand. And yet we send girls, young women, often into their first partnered penetrative sex without ever having given them really the permission or the aid, the tool that allows them to experiment safely without assaulting the fruit and veg drawer in the fridge. Uh, so yeah, I do think that you know, young women with a, an understanding aunt or mom's best friend or somebody who's like a, a, a removed but still a responsible adult but a removed from the parents would benefit from having access to sex toys. All that said, uh, I don't think we really need to worry. And, and all those people who said they wouldn't buy porn for their kid, uh, ask them if when they have kids, they're going to pay for internet access in their house because that is the same thing as handing your kid not just a single skin mag but the world, every skin mag ever produced, every porn film ever made, every paraphilia, every kink, every sex act on earth is available to your kid on their phone or on their laptop if you have internet access. You could have turned that around on your friends who were being kind of sex negative dickbags at you for saying that you would buy a skin mag for a kid, for a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old pubescent boy because if they're paying for internet access in their house and they have 14, 15-year-old boys or girls in their house, they are supplying porn to their kids just the same. It's time for What Do You Got? This week, we have Dr. Megan Roberts, a postdoctoral fellow at Brown University. She's published a study looking at men who claim to be sexually conservative and not so interested in hookups until you show them pictures of naked ladies and then their feelings about hookups change. Listen in. So joining me by phone today for this week's What You Got, Dr. Megan Roberts, a postdoctoral fellow at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, and she's calling us, or we're calling her, in her kitchen because she wanted to uh, <laughs> have a little privacy when she was talking to me today and not talk to me in her shared office, which is a pretty good strategy. So uh, Dr. Roberts, what was your study about and what you got? So I'm a health psychologist. I'm interested in how people's beliefs, attitudes, intentions influence their health-related decisions and behaviors. Um, so this paper is about people who are sexually conservative. So we're defining that as people who, in a baseline screener, were reporting no intentions to have casual sex. So for our study, um, we actually had two experiments going on, um, each with slightly different methods and populations, but the basic outline was the same. Um, people first took a baseline survey in which they were essentially asked to report on a 1 to 7 scale if they were intending to have casual sex in the near future. Then, during an experimental session, people were randomly assigned to either a sex priming condition where they were surreptitiously shown pictures that were essentially attractive women posing provocatively in bikinis. Um, I should mention these are male participants. Or a control condition uh, where they viewed 
pleasant, exciting pictures, but that were not sexual. So mm. um, fireworks, lighting bolts, that kind of thing. So as reviewing these pictures, people were then asked to report on their willingness to have casual sex. Um, and the way we ask about willingness in our lab is with these vignettes um, where we kind of describe a situation that's conducive to the behavior. So imagine you're at a party and you meet someone who's attractive and one thing leads to another. How willing would you be on a one to seven scale to have sex with this person? So what did you find? So we found that compared to people who were not sexually conservative, people who were sexually conservative, so they reported no baseline intentions for casual sex, these people showed an increase in their willingness for casual sex if they were in that sexual prime condition. Were they more willing to have casual sex than the people who had originally reported that they were willing to have casual sex? Did you find that? No, it didn't bring them up. So the people who reported at you know baseline, yes, I'd be totally intending to have casual sex. Um, those people just stayed very high um, after the experimental prime. Didn't really affect them because we almost had kind of a ceiling effect. Mm-hmm. The people who were more sexually conservative, um, there was an increase, but not the level that it brought them up to um, the non-sexually conservative people. So is what you found that people who are sexually conservative kind of deluding themselves or lying to themselves or uh, underestimating their willingness or capacity for uh, impulsive casual intercourse? Well, you know, we didn't really get the follow-up yet. We do have some studies in mind. Um, we don't really know exactly why this happened. Because it's what it sounds like. What it sounds like is you've got these people, and they, you know, there's a sexual person they think they ought to be, which is of course not interested in casual intercourse. No good, decent person is interested in casual, random, nearly anonymous intercourse. And the person they actually are, which is perhaps, if the right situation presented itself, up for it. Right. So. Our kind of take on it, um, we were thinking, I mean, our lab is kind of a decision-making lab. We're interested in how people's decision-making changes in kind of cold to hot situations. Mm -hmm. So if people are kind of asked at baseline in kind of a cold situation, um, what you're intending to do, they might take a more kind of planned, intentional way of thinking about it. Whereas once you're kind of in that situation, so whether it's just seeing pictures or you're actually there at the bar, you kind of engage in a more kind of reactive, context-sensitive decision-making. So what we think is happening with these more sexually conservative people um, is that their decision-making is just a little more malleable. Mm-hmm. Um, and why that is, you know, there could be a whole lot of different reasons, and it could depend on the person. Some people might not just be very attuned to their decision-making, um, maybe just poor at forecasting how they'll be feeling in the moment. Some people might just not have as much experience with that kind of decision-making. Um, and we know that people's you know, intentions are better at predicting their behavior when they have more experience and more exposure to that kind of thing. So what's the takeaway here potentially for health educators? That if you're doing sex ed or HIV education for somebody who says, you know, this isn't really for me, it doesn't really apply, I would never do that, you shouldn't take them at their words and you should just educate the shit out of them against their will? I think that kind of the message from kind of a harm reduction perspective is for everyone to kind of consider what you might do in the heat of the moment. Mm -hmm. Kind of maybe for health educators, the notion is that when you have intentions to do something, that can produce a safer behavior than if you're just making the decision on the fly. Um, So if you're intending or even just hoping to have casual sex, you'll bring protection. Um, Same as if you're intending to get drunk tonight, you're going to make sure you get home safe safely. You're not going to drag yourself home. Dr. Megan Roberts, postdoctoral fellow at Brown University. That's what she's got. If there, What's the name of the study and where can people find it if they want to read it? Okay, the study is in the British Journal of Health Psychology. And the name of the study is Not Intending, But Somewhat Willing, The Influence of 
visual primes on risk decision-making. Dr. Megan Roberts, thanks for jumping on the phone with us today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hi, Dan. Straight, 27-year-old female from New York calling. I have been with my current boyfriend for eight years and I've had endometriosis since I was young, but it never really impacted our relationship too much, save for the occasional surgery every few years to clear out some additional scar, scar tissue. But within the last three years, things have gotten worse. I've developed another condition which makes any penetration extremely painful and on top of the regular internal pain associated with endometriosis, sex is nearly impossible. A few months ago, I finally decided to see a sex therapist to address this, as well as some glaring inequality with finances and housework. I've since gotten my boyfriend to join me in therapy, but he's getting extremely annoyed with the process. While I've been wanting to focus on the inequalities unrelated to sex, my boyfriend is extremely focused on sex and does not seem to understand why we can't just try it every once in a while. Dan, I can't. I can't. The pain is too great. I can't even touch myself, let alone let him even try to do it. I've tried to do a schedule of blowjobs to keep him happy, but he is still completely unsatisfied by this and insists that we should just try and have sex. can't deal with my own sexual issues while he's pressuring me all the time. I could really just use some perspective. Please help me. There was a little hiccup in your call. You said there was something you were offering your boyfriend in place of penetrative vaginal intercourse uh, that he was declining, uh, and we didn't hear that because of just some little burp on Skype. Uh, but th- that's neither here nor there because I think what you need to be offering your boyfriend is his hat and asking him what's his hurry as you hustle him out the door. You don't need this asshole in your life. Um, this isn't the right boyfriend for you. This is a selfish piece of shit. And, you know, he has perhaps a right to grieve. Uh, He is partnered with somebody who cannot have vaginal intercourse and perhaps that's very important to him. But it sounds like he's just being inconsiderate, selfish and bullying about this and not not along for the ride in a supportive way and not willing to accept the, the, the – the, the kind of intimacy that you're physically at this moment capable of, which doesn't include penetrative sex, period, the end, mutual masturbation or unmutual masturbation or blowjobs or just some sort of tactile physical intimacy, cuddling, whatever. If he can't settle for that and is going to be a raging dick about it, is having him around good for your immune system, good for your mental health, good for your vagina? I don't think it's good for any of those things. So I would encourage you to not have him around. And I know this is, you know, there's not a there's not a lid for every pot. The, you know, the lid for every pot fallacy I think plagues the sex and relationship advice industry that, you know, however, you know, he's not a fit, throw him away, find somebody else cuz somewhere out there is your perfect match. So I don't want to encourage you to like believe that somebody else out there is your perfect match, but I get letters from guys who are just not into vaginal intercourse. I get letters from guys who are straight who mostly are into – and this is not something that it sounds like you're up for right now – mostly into uh, cunnilingus and oral sex and mutual masturbation and rolling around and not really so into vaginal intercourse. They're out there uh, and you might – there might be a better match for you in the world. Somebody who by his presence in your life doesn't make you feel damaged and inadequate all the time and doesn't bully and harass you in so selfish and thoughtless and inconsiderate a way – while also acknowledging that he has something to grieve here too if he's going to stay by your side, that he may you know, be a little sad about the fact that being with you, the price of admission may be no vaginal intercourse, period. 
for the foreseeable future. And I think any straight guy in that situation has a right to a big sad about that. But it doesn't sound like he's having a big constructive sad about that. It sounds like he's having a shitty, never-ending tantrum that is making what is an already painful for situation for you medically a painful situation for you emotionally. Ann Landers, at whose desk I am not sitting but I frequently sit, had this thing that she would say in her column sometimes. It was sort of her DTMFA because she couldn't say motherfucker. Uh, but it was her DTMFA where she would just get these letters from women describing these you know, horrible relationships, terrible husbands, awful boyfriends. And she would say, you need to ask yourself whether you'd be better off with him or without him. And I think you need to ask yourself that question. Would you be better off with him or without him? And I think right now you would be better off focusing on your health issues, getting the attention that you need, pulling some people into your life who can offer you support without mow-mowing you about how you owe them vaginal intercourse of some sort as a condition of their support. You'd be better off. You'd be better off alone, single, uh, and, and facing down these issues than facing down these, these health issues right now with this sulking – infantile asshole trying to get into your twat. Hi, Dan. I'm a single woman in my early 30s, and ever since I hit puberty, I've wanted to have a threesome with two men. I'm calling because after spending half my life with this fantasy, this year I've had two different occasions in which I was alone with two available men, and the mood seemed right, but both times it ended up turning into me pairing off with one of them. I later got confirmation from both guys and one of the pairs that each of them would have been interested in a threesome, which made me wonder, is it typically necessary for a single girl to pull the trigger when it comes to initiating a threesome involving her and two dudes? I don't want to mess up this opportunity again, so I would love to get some input. You've been fantasizing about a two guys, one girl, three-way for, what, 17 years since you were 13 years old? Is it 17, 18 yes. years? And, yeah. you, and you haven't done it yet? No, I've never really had an opportunity. No, it's, no it sounds like you've had opportunities, but they slipped through your fingers. That could also be true. So the, the question you ask, and I just want to – we'll get this out of the way. Is it typically necessary for a single girl to pull the trigger uh, and initiate a threesome involving her and two dudes? Yes, it is. And you know why? Because – I. I have some assumptions. <laughs> well, a woman usually has to initiate those kinds of threesomes because the guys might be thinking it, but they'll think, well, if we suggest it, she may feel unsafe or much likelier she'll think we're fags. She'll think that you know, if, if the threesome wasn't something she was into, that she'll think, oh, these guys wouldn't want to do this if you know, they weren't like gay. And for a lot of women, that's going to be a big turnoff. If there's anything even remotely gay about a guy, for a lot of straight women, that's a eh, no-go, right? So usually – and if they're homophobic in any way or conflicted about it, it can make you know, this moment of sort of homoerotic tension. Uh, they can be absolved of any sort of responsibility for having sex near or with or close enough to each other to be counted as sex with each other. Um, if it's because they're doing it for her, they're meeting your needs. Oh, it's totally straight, sort of like, you know, straight washed this like gayishness around the edges of a two girls, uh, one guy threesome in case they like bump dicks or something or their shoulders touch, right? And so, so there's two things that work there. You know, they may want to initiate and they think, well, if we suggest that she's going to think we're gay and not want to do it, or think there's something, you know, we're bi and that's going to turn her off. And, and conversely, if they're, you know, homophobic but into it, they need you to be the actor. They need it, the whole reason this is happening is not because they want it to happen. 
because that's kind of gay, but because you want to happen, you want it to happen and that makes it totally straight. So you will have to initiate. The next time you're in that situation, there's two guys and it feels a little buzzy, just say, I've always had this fantasy about being with two men at once. You guys game? Huh. How hard is it to say that? Well, it's interesting that you say that because I thought the number one reason that the woman would have to initiate would be because the men, I mean, if they're decent men, ideally, they don't want the woman to feel like she's in a situation where she would feel trapped by, you know, if there's two men and they both want to to do it and she's not interested, like, that they might be afraid that, that she would feel overwhelmed or Scared. Right. They may feel that, oh, yeah, we would be into that. Maybe they're communicating with each other telepathically about it. But we need to be considerate of the fact that, you know, if we both propose, proposition her at once, you know, we don't want her to consent to it out of fear or duress. So you initiate. They're not going to do it. These sorts of two-boy, one-girl, three-ways happen usually because the girl says something. And why shouldn't you say something? It's your fantasy that you're trying to arrange the realization of, Correct. Correct. Now, circling back to these two missed opportunities, you have gone back to these guys and talked to them about that moment and what could have been. And they said, yep, could have been. So why don't you say, well, let's make it happen now. What are you doing Saturday? Well, it's funny that you say that. Unfortunately, all four of these guys live in separate cities from me. Uh Uh-huh. And there, are, um, and there are no airplanes and there are no automobiles? Well, one of the situations was sort of a, a spur of the moment. Both of these guys happened to be in my city. They didn't know each other. Mm-hmm. They met each other through me. And that was the pair that I actually spoke to afterwards. I spoke to both guys separately, and they both confirmed that they would have been into it. But I didn't ask. So you're right. So I ask, have now. ask now. Ask <laughs> now. Let's all get together. We this thing almost happened. You guys wanted it to happen. I wanted it to happen. What you're do you're buying into this the, you know sex negativity culture that says if it can happen on the spur of the moment, if nobody intended it for it to happen, if you didn't make any plans, then it's okay. Because then you were carried away by the passion of this moment that nobody orchestrated. But if you start orchestrating, well, then you're a dirty sex pervert. Then you're putting too much importance on sex. You're working too hard at it. But you know, complicated fantasies take planning, logistics to make happen. This is a complicated fantasy. You've wanted it for almost 17 plus years. Clearly, it's not a, a two guys are not going to fall out of the sky at once naked with hard ons and go, hey, how about it, right? But that's almost exactly what happened, except I couldn't pull the trigger. Well, that's why I called. No, you can pull the trigger. You can pull the, you can get off the, uh, you're talking to some fag in Seattle. You can get off the phone with the fag in Seattle and call these two boys and say, let's have a make, let's, let's have a redo on this. I'm hot. You're hot. Uh, it's worth a, a plane trip. Let's like pretend it's that night and, and make this happen. And I've always wanted this. This is something I've always wanted to do. This is my ultimate fantasy, two guys at once. And I want it to be you two guys. What are they going to say? They're either going to say no and then you're where you are right now, which is stuck on the phone with some fag in Seattle, or they're going to say yes and then you'll be where you want to be, which is stuck on two guys. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Shit don't happen. you got to make it happen. Shit don't happen by accident. People you stand around their whole life, wringing their hands, hoping their fantasies will come true, hoping that like the dominatrix will fall out of the sky and land in their lap or hoping the three-way will just happen of its own accord. No, you have to make it happen. You have to ask for it. You have to do it. 
Sometimes you have to lay the groundwork. Sometimes you have to make plans. Sometimes you got to circle back and say, you know, that night it really felt like this thing that I've always wanted to experience almost happened. And they were like, yep, it almost happened. Well, let's make that happen then. Let's get together. How far away are they? What cities are we talking about? Are they in Bangkok and Moscow and you're in Cairo? Like how far away are you all from each other? You don't have to name the cities, uh, but distances. We're, tra- we're talking bi-coastal. One's on one coast and one's on the other coast. Uh-huh. And are you in the middle? Yes. Okay, perfect. Then nobody has to fly all the way from one coast to the other. They just have to come to you, to your city. <laughs> ask them. Ask okay. them. The worst they can say is no. And then – or one says yes and one says no. Or they both say yes. They're both going to say yes. Men or pigs, they will come. <laughs> okay. Okay, so we're back. Uh, there are details that only I know and the listeners may not know and cannot know and I shall never divulge them to you listeners. But you have a plan now. We, we hammered out a plan, right? Yes. And you know what you need to do? I do. And you're going to call us back and give us an update in a week or two. That's, that's correct. I will report back. Or I'm going to get on a plane and I'm going to come to you and I'm going to kick down your front door and ask for that report. Thank you so much, Dan. You're welcome. Good luck. Have fun. Yay. Fantasy fulfillment is better than fantasy unfulfillment. Have fun. Good luck. (laughs) Thanks. Bye. Bye. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old gay man, and I have a really stupid problem. Um, I am going out with this really rad dude. Um, We've been on three dates. Uh, It's going really well. Um, Except, okay, so on our most recent date the other night... I invited him over to my house and we made some food and watched a movie and all good things. Um, and so naturally, as generally happens around this time, we made it into bed and I get his clothes off and am both elated and horrified because his dick is a monster. It's fucking massive. And honest to God, I don't know what I'm going to do. He was like, I would like to suck you. Not quite like that, but you get the idea. And I was like, yeah, let's wait for to do that because I feel like he's going to kill me with this thing. I have been around the block. I've done a lot of bothering, but never with anybody quite so large. And I'm afraid he's going to hurt me. Um, honest to God, it's, I, it's one of the only dicks I've ever encountered that I can't even close my hand around like my fingers don't touch. It's so fucking big, Dan. And so I kind of played it off, like, yeah, let's wait, let's not fuck yet, blah, blah, blah. And it was fine. But now I'm feeling like I don't know what to do. Like, I really like this dude. He's super awesome. He's scoring major points. But I don't feel like he's going to be able to fuck me. And that is the stupidest problem I have ever had. I've, you know, I've thought about, like, okay, like, should I, like, get some bigger toys and, like, try and play around that way and see if I can train myself up to it. But honestly, like, I feel like there's only so far that can take you. So I don't know if you have any other ideas. I am totally stumped and would hate to have to stop seeing this guy simply because his penis is too gorgeously large. So how big are we talking about here? Like you're, you're a gay guy. You're 27. You say you've been around the block a little bit. You've gone online. You've looked at Xtube. You've seen men with arms in their asses. It can't be bigger than an arm. (laughs) Well, okay, so so it is not bigger than an arm. Um, it is one of maybe, gosh, like two dicks that I can't even close my hand around. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that's pretty big, and it's maybe like, you know, like lengthwise maybe like seven, seven and a half. Oh, but that's Here's the other thing. 
I'm a small person. Uh, I'm only five foot four. Mm-hmm. And as such, I'm not suited anatomically to this. You know what I mean? Like, right. I've kind of learned my limits over the years. So I don't know what to do. Well, and, and he's a top. He, this is, he puts this thing in, in men's butts. That's his. Yes. Arrow. Yes, he does. <laughs> Yeah. Well, uh, the thing you do is you see if you can get there. You see if you can go there without damaging yourself by going very slow, by getting some toys, by playing. And if it's, you know, anatomically impossible, that doesn't mean you can't be in a relationship. It just means well, yeah. when he wants to get his topping rocks off, he might have to. You might have to bring in a very special guest star, or <laughs> or fake it. You know, uh, there is a way to sort of simulate anal intercourse by lubing up your inner thighs and your taint and clenching. Uh, your legs together and cupping your hands uh, in the front and he basically fucks that kind of sloppy thigh and palm of your hands canal that you've created along your ass crack for him without actually yeah, penetrating you. And, and it's for Taj, yeah. the Princeton rub, and it uh, it actually feels good not just for him but also for you because you're getting all this pressure across your taint and you're getting sort of bank shot prostate stimulation depending on how – uh, you know how much pressure you're applying, you know, force pushing up, pushing his dick up uh, as it slides back and forth along your asshole and your chain. It can be fun for you too, but he has to be realistic. Like if his dick is going to kill you or kill <laughs> anybody else roughly your size, and he wants to be with you, he may have to make certain sacrifices. But a sacrifice that you should make is like lay in some toys of gradually larger sizes that get closer to where his dick is, and maybe it is a place that you can get to. The sphincter is a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it gets. There are tiny people who have been fucked by very large things. Um, <laughs> and maybe you could be one of those tiny people if he's worth it. Yeah, And I'm not know, saying well, if he's worth it, you have to get there, but you could make that attempt. Yeah, and I did actually sort of uh, begin ordering some new friends for myself in the toy department. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so hopefully that will go some some way toward, you know, figuring out what to do. A guy, a guy who likes you who has a big dick, those are good problems to have, both of them. Yeah, exactly. And a friend of mine told me, she was like, who I was talking to about this, she said, this is his problem also. Like, he needs to help you figure this out. Absolutely. Which I thought was a really good point. <laughs> Absolutely. And and figuring it out and solving it doesn't necessarily mean you get to a place where he can fuck you with that thing whenever he wants or at all. That figuring it out may be a workaround or an accommodation that allows you guys to have a really awesome sex life where that thing, which may be too big to ever get in, little tiny you butt – doesn't go into little tiny you butt, but it goes other places and has fun with you, on you, around you, and maybe every once in a while you bring in a superstar bottom champ if you're not threatened by that who just wants <laughs> to bounce up and down on your boyfriend's giant dick while you bounce around doing whatever it is you want to do on your boyfriend's face. That sounds super fun. <laughs> there are accommodations that can be made, but you should, you should try and stretch and grow, literally. Yeah, I, I'm going to make an effort. <laughs> Give us a call back and let us know how it went. All right, I will. Okay, thanks a lot. All right, thanks, Dan. Bye. Hey, Dan. This is Shane, North Carolina, 32 straight male. My question is kind of interesting. I think uh, I have two kids. They are 10 and 7, boy and girl, respectively. Um, We are going to go visit some family members for Thanksgiving, and the family members are in an interesting relationship. It's two girls and a guy, and they all three are equally in the relationship. How do I explain it to my children, or should I even explain it to my children, that they're all three in love with each other equally? 
Um, is this something I should subject my children to? Do you think I should ask the three of them to kind of keep it low key for the weekend and avoid the situation altogether? So to boil your question down, it's essentially love. Is it something I should subject my children to love? Is it something my children should have to look at? Um, I imagine that, uh, that this triad, like all the couple ads, all the two ads, all the duos, uh, at Thanksgiving are going to keep it low key. Thanksgiving isn't exactly Mardi Gras. People don't climb all over each other, at least at our house. When I was a kid with extended family around, there wasn't a lot of macking or making out or high key as opposed to low key kind of evidence of who everyone was to each other. Uh, so I don't necessarily think that you're going to be put into a situation unless these folks in this triad are highly committed to very explicit PDA that requires an explanation for the children. I can't imagine there's really anything you're going to have to unpack. Let them be who they are just as you would have an aunt or uncle come over and they would be who they are. And if your kids have a question, they'll ask and you can just answer. And kids are easy. Adults are hard. Adults are the ones with hangups. And you see this around gay shit. Like, oh, if you bring your boyfriend home, what do we say to the kids? You say, that's my boyfriend. And you say that to kids. And I went through this with my family when I came out a million years ago. You say that to your to little kids and they're like, oh, okay. This person is to Danny what my mom is to my dad. They don't – they're not confused. So if there's three people there and there's any sort of like moment of hand-holding and your kid notices and says, what's that about? All you have to say is, you know, most people are in relationships with just one other person. Most people are coupled as your parents are. But every once, you know, some people, they're throupled. Some people have two boyfriends at once or two girlfriends at once or whatever and it's not a problem and it's uh, it's unique. It's different. It's not the way most people live uh, but there's nothing at all wrong with it and they're part of our family. And your kid's going to go, OK, can I have some more pie? It's really not going to be that big a deal to the kid. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to one of your callers this week who – was commenting that you maybe had a bit of a double standard on a double standard in encouraging women to round down their number of sexual partners while also encouraging bisexuals to come out. And I think you handled his question very well, but I thought you missed an important point, which is that maybe we should be encouraging women to be out with their number of sexual partners and honest about them as it could potentially reduce the slut-shaming that goes on in our society. Maybe men would realize that they are, in fact, surrounded by women who have had a lot more partners than they realize, and that slut-shaming is destructive and inappropriate. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to the last episode, where, uh, first of all, the woman who has jacked off 5,000 dicks Great advice, memoir or play or something like that, but alternatively, and probably something you could pull off uh, fairly anonymously, I attended a handjob workshop at a sex shop years ago, so I'm sure in her town um, she could start up something like that, like, a, you know, erotic massage tips for ladies who want uh, help getting their partner off from an expert. Uh, that kind of thing you could charge uh, per head and um, probably make a, you know, a pretty decent living a few nights a week. Hello, Dan. I had to pause my podcast right after the woman that was doing erotic massage for 23 years, and I think she so should do that book. 
That would be hilarious and heartfelt and awesome. I'm picturing like an Augustine Burroughs, David Starris kind of humor. And I think she really should do it. And I think <laughs> 5,000 Dicks would be an awesome title. So go out there and do it. I'll be the first one to buy your book. And we're going to leave it there. A big thank you to all of our Savage Lovecast Magnum subscribers. And a huge thank you to all the new Savage Lovecast Magnum subscribers who joined us for the new season. It's 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Rescue. We'll be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.